The following is a Barrett Sports Media production. We do the digging so you don't have to. We've got breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. Bringing you the biggest stories from the industry you care about. This is the Media Noise Podcast. Well, let's hear it. Now, here's your host, Dimitri Ravanos. A season of growth and change is upon us here at Barrett Sports Media. We have two brand new members of the writing staff joining me on today's episode. Jason Ince uh, writes about sports gambling for us now. He is going to talk about his new column, questioning how much longer is Las Vegas really the sports gambling capital of America. And Brady Farkas and I will talk about all things baseball media related. He wrote a great profile of Buster Only this week. That is all coming up on the show today. But first, let's talk about winning time on HBO. This is, I think, one of the very best scripted shows on TV right now. It is so tremendously entertaining. And it's not even just the fact that John C. Riley is doing great work. The girl that plays a young genie bus is delivering one of the best performances on TV I've ever seen a young actress uh, give. Quincy Isaiah, who plays the young Magic Johnson is amazing in that role. And the story is so much fun. And, you know, I was thinking about this a lot, particularly with what Petros Papadakis had to say on AM570 in LA earlier this week, which was basically that the Lakers organization hates this show because it has reminded everybody that they used to be fun, they used to be awesome, and they were not always this hopeless as they are right now in 2022. You know, there is a documentary about the Showtime Lakers that is coming, I believe, next year, and I believe on Netflix. Don't hold me to that. Also, I think by now you probably know there is the Magic Johnson documentary coming to Apple TV Plus later on this month. And I think one of the things that those guys might hate about winning time is a big reason I'm skeptical of those projects. Look, I'm somebody that enjoyed The Last Dance, but really does not like how much control Michael Jordan had over everything because you're not learning anything, right? If all you want to do is go back and relive the sanitized highlight version of these things, just go to YouTube. If Magic Johnson doesn't like winning time because it portrays his sex life in a very uh, out-of-control, gratuitous sort of way... I mean, okay, I understand that. You were at a different place in your life now for sure, but this was part of your story, right? Him coming out as being positive for HIV in 1992 when we all thought that was a death sentence, like that was such a big part of who Magic Johnson was and reshaped who he was going to be in the public eye going forward. Like these things about your past are certainly assumed or known and I get the feeling based on his reactions to winning time we're going to do a documentary where we just gloss over and pretend that's not how we got to this point I mean look I hope they call me magic is great I hope the documentary about the Showtime Lakers is great but if the franchise is recoiling at the fact that this show, and granted, some of it is heavily dramatized for TV, right? But if they are recoiling at not everything being positive, boy, that doesn't make me very optimistic for what we're going to see in these documentaries. 
Maybe you've noticed all of the additions we have made lately to BarrettSportsMedia.com. And so I'm going to introduce you to a couple of the guys today. Jason Incy is on board from Louisville writing about sports gambling and the sports gambling media for us. First of all, Jason, welcome aboard. It is very confusing uh, having two Jasons now and one of them controls my paycheck and the other one does not. I- I'm not sure which one to be nicer to, honestly. Well, I mean, I, I can always claim that I'm the one that puts the name on the check. That way you can be nicer to me. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, like within, I don't know, a day and a half. I had to train myself into saying JB as opposed to uh, Jason when uh, I was talking to him. All right, man, let's talk about your first column because it is excellent. The question is how much longer can Las Vegas reasonably expect to stay the sports gambling capital of America. And it's really important to ask this question right now. I think not just because other municipalities, other geographic locations are catching up, but honestly, how much does the brick and mortar sports book matter in the age of, you know, apps and mobile betting? Well, I think it still has its place, especially when you look at something like March Madness. You know, you, you go to any sports book or you've seen videos from them during the NCAA tournament, all the games on at once, you've got hundreds of people in the room living and dying by, you know, what some people might view as a meaningless basket at the end of the game. And that atmosphere, that's still an event. It's an experience. But recent numbers, especially when you look at New York, you know, their first month of gambling, 80% of their bets were made via mobile app. Mm-hmm. And the ability to to go out with friends and go to a bar and watch a game or you're at a buddy's house and you're watching a game and you want to have some action on it. You know, nobody wants to have to drive to the local sports book. You can just do it right there like anything else in the palm of your hand. And I think that's why you're seeing these at these these companies explode with the revenue that they're bringing in. Long term, I mean, nobody wants to go to a, to a brick and mortar sports book on a Tuesday afternoon at, at one o'clock <laughs> right. on a game. Right. I mean, that's a that's a really good point. And, you know, some of this is going to be perception versus reality in terms of how Las Vegas markets itself, because, look, New Jersey already has uh, surpassed Vegas in terms of the take. They, like Mississippi, were ready. I mean, they were just waiting for the gavel to hit the table and they were ready to turn on the bulldozers and start building sports books on their casinos. New York has taken off. Pennsylvania has taken off. There are going to end up being plenty of places that bring in larger handles than Vegas, but Vegas top to bottom, man, it it is built on PR. And I think it's going to be really hard to unseat it in people's minds in that way. Yeah. And, and one thing to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, sports gambling, when it comes to Vegas is, is minuscule. You know, right. you look at the numbers from 2019, they brought in a net profit of about $330 million. You compare that to penny slots, which was 3.46 billion. So wow. I think the biggest, I think the biggest thing is, and what you're seeing at, you know, casinos in, in New Jersey is sports spreading brings in people that wouldn't necessarily come in to gamble. And if they come in and they win that money, then they're, they're tempted to go and try out table games or slots and you keep some of that money in house. So I think it, it goes hand in hand of, the increase in sports betting across the country will then parlay itself into people coming into sports books, into casinos, and wagering on other things where they can take a bigger portion of the money. 
Let's wrap up here because you pointed out something in the column that I think is really important regarding the way Vegas moves forward on sports betting. You mentioned that, you know, as mobile sports betting was taking off, FanDuel and DraftKings were, you know, they were ready to go out of the gate, right? But as those became more and more popular, you saw the MGMs and the Caesars and the Wins try and figure out, okay, what does mobile sports betting look like for us? I I tie that into exactly what you just said. Sports betting is such a small part of the overall handle that uh, Las Vegas brings in that I wonder not do casinos abandon sports betting. That's never going to happen. But do they keep investing the kind of money they need to in order to make those sorts of uh, sports books the kind of the kind of events, the kind of destinations that they felt like they've had to over the last couple of years? And, and that's that's an interesting topic because if you go back, the, the company that I used to write for for the last couple of years, Twinspires, they recently announced on their earnings call that they're getting out of the sportsbook business. They're keeping their race book. But sportsbook-wise, they made so little money last year when you factor in the amount of money they had to spend on promotions that it just wasn't worth it. Right. And look at how much money – I mean, Col- the state of Colorado actually lost money in January, the companies there, because they had to expend more in promotional bets and balances – than what they actually brought in. That's actually so I, why we're seeing New York already reconsider that 51% tax margin, right? Is they're, they're a little bit worried that it never grows. Uh, the, the, the amount of uh, operators never grows at that rate. True, but keep in mind as well, New York in less than a month in January brought in $63.5 million in tax revenue, which was half of what they brought in total in the entire state in tax revenue, just off of that. If you've got enough people there that can bet on those big dogs of DraftKings, FanDuel, et cetera, those companies are going to continue to stay there and they're going to continue to make money and, and bring in tax revenue. It will be interesting to see if the casino books like a, like an, a BetMGM, like a Caesars, especially with how much money they're having to spend to bring in customers, if they continue to spend that much on marketing and promotional bonuses or if they decide, you know what, it's just not worth the investment. Let's let's focus on other aspects of the business. Another new guy that we are bringing into the fold here at uh, Barrett Sports Media, Brady Farkas, who has been a good friend of mine for a while now. So happy to have you on board, finally contributing, Brady. Yeah, Dimitri, appreciate the opportunity. And you know, I've been a longtime reader of the of the site and listener of the podcast. So it's uh, it's cool to be part of the team. Yeah, well, your first column for the website was a profile of your buddy Buster Olney. And one of the things that jumped out to me right away, and you put this in the uh, in the column, is you did not know the story about Jason Grimsley crawling through the ductwork uh, to retrieve Albert Bell's corked bat in Baltimore. Or in Cleveland. Yeah, in Cleveland. Well, it was, it was, uh, I think it was in Chicago. But yeah, Albert Bell was playing for Cleveland. Yeah. I did not know that story. And I guess, you know, through, through research, it's a very famous baseball story. <laughs> I'm shocked that I didn't know it. My only, my only, uh, defense is ignorance that I was five years old in <laughs> right. 1994. So, you know, I remember, you know, I know Albert Bell well and I remember him vividly, but, and I remember the corked bat story. You know, what is interesting is that that story paints a really good picture of the difference between Bud Selig and his relationship with the media versus what we are going through right now with Rob Manfred, where Buster only basically says it took a while for Selig to come around, but he realized 
this is an absolutely absurd story. And it would be a good thing for the league to have this out there. Like people would be enamored by the idea that a team was basically committee, like, uh, like an oceans 11 level, um, heist. I have to go back and look, I think Albert Bell might've been retired by 1999 when the story came out. So that might have played a role in, you know, why it was okay to tell. One of the things I didn't mention in the story that was really interesting was like, so Jason Grimsley told Buster in 99, like, I will do this interview with you if I make the team, if I make the Yankees team. Right. So every spring training appearance that Grimsley went out there, Buster's rooting for a scoreless appearance so that (laughs) he can make the team and this story can get told because you know, he didn't want to do this if he wasn't going to be on the team. You know, I, I don't know if it was going to, you know, maybe he thought it would affect his career down the line if he needed to try to go get another job. You know, the the Yankees are a great place to transition here because as we are recording this on Thursday morning, the Yankees just dropped their schedule for the which games will be the 21 Amazon exclusives this year. And it is a lot of Friday games. It yeah. is three Red Sox games. And it is one Mets game like this really seems to tie in to some of the criticisms of MLB's streaming deals. I don't think they are as big of a deal as, say, Christopher Mad Dog Russo made them out to be. But when you have a sport with a fan base that is largely older, that really does embrace tradition and you are taking away uh, not taking away, I guess you are making them jump through one more hurdle to experience some of the biggest games. I understand, even if I don't agree with the complaints. So answer me this question on the Yankees specifically. Yeah. These games are not on local television That's in New right. York. So, okay. So New so, Yorkers, for New Yorkers, you would remember these as the package of games that used to go to WPIX every year. Yeah, so... I mean, this is a tough one because as a consumer, I, I hate it, you know, and, but I get it from baseball standpoint in that you want the game in front of as many different people as you can. And most, you know, younger people have streaming services. A lot of kids now, you know, that's the only way they have right. things is because their families have cut the cord. So putting the game in front of people in different spots is a really good idea. I just wish it was like, they're on television and also on these other things. So they're easier to get. Like, look, I, I pay for MLB TV, right? So mm-hmm. I, you know, I pay $129.99 a year to watch, you know, I watch the Red Sox for work and I watch the Mariners for life. So I pay $129 a year to watch the Mariners games. And now you're telling me that that, like that payment's not going down. Yeah. Do you, you know, if they, if they play on Sunday morning on Peacock and now you got to <laughs> have that, and if they're playing on Amazon prime and if they're on, TBS. Now you got to, do I have a cable service that has that or do I have TBS streaming? So, you know, I wish that the price would come down on some of these things. Like if you're going to make me jump through all these hoops, don't keep the price the same as it's always been. Like, you know, now I get to watch 162 Mariners games. If you tell me I, now I'm paying the same money for 140 Mariners games, I'm a lot less happy about it. And if I lived in, in market and I have a TV, you know, I have a, a local TV provider that plays the games. And now you're telling me that I only get 120 of those games on television. I'm ticked off too. I mean, look, that's, that's very fair. And the next evolution is going to be even more interesting. You mentioned kids and how they experience things. Now, Mark Cuban talked about this on the Dan Patrick show earlier this week that he said, you know, the way kids uh, consume everything, but particularly sports, like baseball is ideally built for a generation of people 
raised on TikTok for a generation of people that, you know, are used to getting their content from TikTok. And his idea uh, was that you keep the linear presentation of Major League Baseball, but there is always going to be this group of fans that wants to see everything, be it from one team, biggest games, whatever the case may be. But the league right now should be investing in an algorithm-driven app that lets you swipe into individual at-bats or individual in-game situations. So like a, like an NFL red zone style? That's, in fact, he said, he said NFL red zone that you pay somewhere in the area of 3 to $5 a month for. I think that's a great idea. I think that that is a great idea because there's plenty of times where, you know, this pitcher has got a no hitter going in the eighth and you get the alert on ML, on the MLB app and right. you want to, okay, I don't need to watch the whole game, but you know, to see this random pitcher for the Minnesota twins, I'd like to see the last three outs potentially so I can see a no hitter or Albert Pujols is going for home run number 700. I don't know exactly when it's going to be. Um, so I may not want to just pay $129 to watch MLB TV to see this one moment, but if I could swipe in on something, that would be great too. I think that that price point, is perfectly fair where you just, you know, you can bounce around and choose what you're watching and you can expose yourself to some of the biggest moments in the sport. And you can say, you know, I saw, you know, I saw that happen. All right. That is where we put a pin in it for today. Keep going to the website, check out all of these new writers that are coming on board, new people doing columns, new people doing news, plus all the guys and, uh, well, I guess no gals yet at this point, but we're still adding, uh, that you've known for a long time. We're all still there. Barrett Sports Media is experiencing awesome growth right now, and we're so happy that you keep coming back to check it out. Talk to you next week, everybody. This concludes our broadcast day. Thanks for listening to the Media Noise Podcast with Dimitri Ravanos. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. And check back soon for new episodes. To stay up to date on the latest sports media happenings, visit BarrettSportsMedia.com.